You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, Jürgen. Добро пожаловать в Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. Hello, welcome. And you're listening to The Voice on the radio. And this is the last episode of this season. Unfortunately, the topic for today is the heaviest of all. It is about the re-education camps in Xinjiang. However, I would like to introduce this episode on a completely different topic. Here in Leuven, there is a campaign called May May Niet in Dutch, which means do not mow the grass in May. So now you can see around the campus that the grass is left unmowed and all kinds of flowers and weeds are growing. The aim of this campaign is to provide more habitat for all kinds of animals and vegetation to survive, given the climate change. This reminds me of a poem by Philip Larkin, which is called The Mower. Please allow me to read it for you, and I will try to connect this poem with the campaign Mamenit and Xinjiang. The Mower by Philip Larkin. The mower stowed twice. Kneeling, I find a hedgehog jammed up against the blades, killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before and even fed it once. Now I had mowed its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning, I got up, and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. So, the poem is very simple. It is about a person who was mowing the grass accidentally killed a hedgehog. And the conclusion Larkin draws is also very simple. We should be kind, we should be careful of each other while there's still time. But as we all know, to be careful and to be kind are extremely difficult. It is much easier to be careless and to be unkind, to be mean. Yet, Sometimes it is only when the suffering that we have caused due to carelessness and unkindness that forces us to see the impact we have upon others, other human beings or other living beings. Here lies the difficulty. We do not know what impact we have upon the world in the same way that the person mowing the grass has no idea that he or she will kill a hedgehog or numerous other animals and plants. This ignorance can be applied to anything that we do. All the decisions that we make, no matter how trivial, will affect others in ways that are concealed to ourselves. So we can never know the extent to which we have affected others. And I think that is why Lacan says, we need to be careful and be kind, because even a little Carelessness might be catastrophic for another. 
If the things we buy are made by forced labor, if the things we say would hurt another person deeply, or the or the way we live our life causes other species to be distinct, the fact that we are ignorant of the consequences of our actions does not make us less responsible for those consequences. The fact that the mower does not know there was a hedgehog. Does not make him or her less responsible for killing the hedgehog. I think it applies to other sufferings that we indirectly cause, and that is why knowing what is behind the trivial things and be careful with how we interact with others is of great importance. And I have conducted today's episode on Xinjiang in this spirit to remind myself. The consequence of my actions and my ignorance of those consequences, and therefore try to be more careful in what I say and do. It is hard, I know, but I think that is the only way to make oneself and the world better. So, without further ado, let me introduce the first song. All the music played today are made by Wigger. Musicians. The first one is called "Achresh Konda" by Abdurrahim Hayat. Please enjoy. <laughs> Saçar dedi sözüm mü? Dedim mi volkan mı sen? O dedi yak yak. Dedim kıyak ne dur? Dedi kaşımdır. Dedim mi kunduz ne dur? Dedi saçımdır. Dedim. Dedim rena nedir? 
çeker nedir dedi dedimdir dedimdir ağzıma o dedi akıya dedim zencer durur dedi boynumda dedim ölüm badur dedi yolumda dedim bilezikçe dedi kulunda dedim korkar mısın o dedi yapıyor Dedim neçin korkmazsa Dedi tanrım bu Dedim yalçı Dedi halkım var Dedim yanı yok mu Dedi rahim var Dedim müşküran mı sen O dedi yak yak Dedim istek ne dur Dedi gülümdür Dedim çelişmakka Dedi yolumdur Dedim ötkür nime Dedi kulumdur Dedim satar mı sen Dedi yap ya Welcome back. The song you just listened to is Uk Rech Kwanda by Abdurrahim Hayet, the um, famous Uyghur singer. I'll let the guest today, Vanessa, introduce the song to us. However, let me uh, introduce uh, Vanessa to you guys first. Um, I'm honored to have invited Professor Vanessa Frankville, the senior lecturer and chair of Chinese studies at Universitat Libre de Brussels, ULB in Brussels, who I have met on several occasions when she was raising public awareness of what is happening in Xinjiang. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, Vanessa, would you like to tell us more about the song? Yeah, so first maybe two words about the singer because uh, he was, uh, he's extremely popular, very famous, and he was allegedly reported uh, dead in 2019, which really steered a lot of emotion among the Uyghur diaspora, uh, especially in Turkey. And following uh, this report, uh, the Chinese authorities released a video showing him alive and, and, and telling everyone that he was fine. So. Uh, we actually don't know anything about uh, Abdulahim Eyet's uh, condition. Uh, so we can only uh, hope that uh, he is still alive as the Chinese government uh, wanted us to, to know. The song Ushrash uh, Kanda is also the name of a famous poem by Abdulahim Atkur, who is a, a famous Uyghur poet in the first part of the 20th century. It deals with the access to freedom And it's uh, like many of these uh, poems of the time, a nationalist poem, if you want, about the Uyghur lands and, and the, the plight of the Uyghurs uh, in, in their lands. Okay, great. 
Thank you. So I think uh, this song is quite fitting to our topic today. So let me just say a few words about how the news unfold and where should we begin to talk about this issue. One-fifth of cotton produced in the world comes from China, and 80% of China's cotton is produced in Xinjiang, the northwestern region in China. This fact of the global fabric supply chain came under the spotlight in 2019 when human rights groups scrutinized retail giants such as Nike and H&M for using Xinjiang cotton, which are allegedly provided by Uyghur workers under various forms of forced labor. The Uyghurs are the largest ethnic minority in Xinjiang. They are the indigenous Muslim community of this region. The allegations of forced labor are part of a bigger investigation into China's implementation of the so-called re-education camps in Xinjiang since 2014. The Chinese authority claims that the purpose of this campaign is to de-extremalize religious thoughts, which are considered as causes of potential terrorism and separatism. People can be detained in these camps without trial, and the charge of, quote, extreme religious thoughts, unquote, can be as trivial as praying five times a day or using a Western social media. The forms of re-education they are forced to go through have reported to involve massive human rights abuses, such as forced labor, rape, torture, and other forms of violence, all committed under the campaign of war on terror. The purpose of today's episode is not to summarize what practices have been carried out in Xinjiang against the Uyghur population by the Chinese state, nor to illustrate the level of cruelty and brutality with which these practices are carried. It is not my intention to move you, whoever listens to this episode, into fear and pity for the victims or anger and indignation against the offenders. During my research for this uh, interview, just by reading the academic papers and news reports on this issue, I often need to take an emotional distance from the things that are described in these documents. It is simply unfathomable to think that these cases have happened and the crimes committed at the level of tens of thousands systematically, structurally, and institutionally since 2014. It is also not my intention to determine whether to call it religious oppression, ethnic cleansing, concentration camps, or even genocide. This episode is mainly try to understand the cause of violence and terror that has been committed in Xinjiang. So Vanessa, let me begin by asking you about the term terrorism and the global war on terror. As I understand it, before the 9-11 attack in 2001, the notion of terrorism or religious extremism were not used to report or to understand the riots or any kind of unrest in Xinjiang or in China at large. Since then, however, these phrases have been the umbrella terms to report and frame any type of civil unrest in Xinjiang and used to legitimize the state's response to them. For example, as I said before, the setup of re-education camps are done in the name of war on terror. And this kind of practice is certainly visible in America's treatment of Iraq or Afghanistan, for example. And uh, I'm wondering, how do we, in Xinjiang's case, distinguish a reason from an excuse? How do we know that the Chinese state is not setting up the camps for the reasons that they claim to have? 
Well, you're right to say that uh, there was barely any mention of terrorism uh, in Beijing discourse before 2001, although religious extremism was already a topic. Actually, the main focus of political campaigns in the 90s, especially in the late 90s, in the Uyghur region, the main focus was separatism, especially after the fall of the USSR and the independence of uh, several neighboring Central Asian countries. And uh, many Uyghurs believed that they would also be able to be independent uh, following Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and other Central Asian countries. Uh, so what China feared at the time and, and still fear actually uh, very explicitly is to be the next USSR. That's why way before 2001, in the 90s, uh, the Chinese government made efforts to repress any protest movements. And uh, that included uh, various political campaigns like the uh, Strike Hard campaign that started in 1996. But this was targeting mostly politism and separatism. But following 9-11, as you mentioned rightly, Bush called for a, a global war on terror. And Chinese authorities also start using terrorism more systematically. China was often portrayed in Chinese media as a victim of terrorism, just like the US. And uh, I would advise the audience maybe to have a look at uh, Sean Roberts' book on the global war on the Uyghurs, because he shows very well how this narrative of the Uyghur terrorist threats uh, was shaped over the past uh, 20 years now, and how the Uyghurs began to be systematically associated with terrorism in the official discourse and in popular media. But the fact is that many scholars focusing on, on the Uyghur region consider that Beijing has been using anti-terrorism as an excuse to suppress dissent in the region. It's not just about groups with separatist agendas. Repression also targeted any form of protest against uh, the Communist Party's policies uh, in the region. And uh, in fact, what the Chinese state calls separatism refers to a very broad range of activities. You know, it could be any desire for cultural autonomy or religious linguistic autonomy. It's all labeled as separatist and potentially terrorists. And so what most research actually reveal is that Although it's true that there is a resurgence of Muslim identity in the Uyghur region, especially after the 90s, uh, like everywhere else, actually in Central Asia, in fact, demonstrations and unrest in the Uyghur region are mostly motivated by not religious demands, but secular demands. The discontent is mostly of a socioeconomic nature and people who actually protest and uh, go on demonstration are for a large part of them secular people. They're not related to any religious institution. Of course, these tensions between the Uyghurs and Beijing are not new. Uh, they can actually be traced back to the 19th century. And then uh, after the 50s, when the People's Liberation Army of the Communist Party entered the, the, the region and took control of the administration. But things really escalated in the 90s. And I think that uh, if we want to understand the difference between the US and, and China, for instance, on these questions, to understand these tensions, we have to consider the, the colonial dimension of Beijing's policies in, in the Uyghur region. So if you have to compare the Uyghur case 
and the Chinese repression on, on the Uyghur under the name of counterterrorism campaigns, you could actually look at um, the history of indigenous people in Australia, in North America, in some former European colonies, because here this is really about a colonial power, uh, in this case China, which is marginalizing and displacing and trying to assimilate uh, indigenous people using this excuse of terrorism. And uh, I'm, I, I want to follow up on the, the colonial framework that we can use, because of course in Chinese official narrative of history, they are the colonized, they are the victims of colonialism. Even the word imperialism does not apply to the expansion of Chinese empire before the Republic. And the sheer fact that they frame uh, colonialism as a Western product make themselves not liable to this charge. scale and the scope of the camp and the all the associated atmosphere of terror that uh, the state imposes on the region. Because some scholars have argued that what they want to do is to assimilate the, the Uyghur uh, population into the Han culture or achieve some kind of cultural cleansing. And then, as you said about the linguistic uh, erase from the street, from the signpost, or from the textbook. And I also read the news about the cases of campaigns of moving moving Han ethnic population into the, the Uyghur populated uh, region. This program of the homestay, so you let the Han workers live in your house. And then they, they encourage intermarriage between Han male and Uyghur girls. I'm wondering if we can unify all those practices into a single goal and to say, what, what is the goal there? Yes, you're right, because all these practices seem to be not connected, but they're actually really interconnected. They compose a, a whole atmosphere and they probably follow also the same objective. So first, I would say that it's a general tendency, um, not just for Uyghurs, but for all non-Han population, so people who don't belong to the Han majority. There's this tendency among Chinese scholars and, um, and policy makers to consider that the um, ethnic policies that were implemented in the 50s and are still implemented until now have failed uh, to create a harmonious multi-ethnic society and has failed to integrate non-Han population. And, and we have seen not just in the Uyghur region, but everywhere uh, in China, very explicit efforts from the authorities to accelerate what they call the, uh, the ethnic fusion. 
it targets not just the Uyghur region, but also Tibet, Mongolia, some other areas where non-Han populations are concentrated. So for instance, the promotion of intermarriages that you have mentioned was developed in Tibet first, where mixed couples were awarded with financial compensation or as year access to housing, promotion, good schools, other social services, and so on. And this was applied later in, in the Uyghur region. But in the Uyghur region, once again, it takes a different dimension because the, the Uyghur region, like you said, is a land of massive migration from inland uh, China. It's much more the case than Tibet, for instance. So, And these migrants are indeed mostly men, uh, Han men, and the official discourse actually mostly promotes marriages of Han migrants, Han men and Uyghur women. We see both. We also see Uyghur men with uh, Han women, but it's rare. It's mostly really uh, Han men and Uyghur women. I don't know if you have seen this video that is quite appalling. Uh, it circulated on social media. So we see a young Uyghur woman. She's standing against a paradisiac background, you know, high mountains, blue lakes, uh, green landscapes, and all the stereotypes about the Uyghur region. And then the legends uh, in the video insist that the region is now safe, it's clean from terrorism, and that Uyghur women are now waiting to find good hand husbands. It's yeah. quite emblematic. It's not only about encouraging inter-ethnic marriages or fusion, it's actually patriarchal, sexist, and racialist somehow. It's very akin, once again, to uh, the, colonial, uh, the colonial rule. And in terms of preserving their language, here again, we see that this is not just in the Uyghur region. For instance, last year, Beijing drastically limited the teaching of Mongolian in inner Mongolian schools. In the case of the Uyghurs, there were many reforms over the past 10 years or 15 years. So it becomes more and more difficult to actually teach and learn Uyghur. There are still some spaces, but it's very difficult. And the only spaces that were left very often were the mosques, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact. So now it's, um, it's more like a decorative language, if you want. So an interesting fact is that uh, two years ago, there were no books, very, very few books or textbooks in the Uyghur language on bookstore shelves. We could mm -hmm. see barely anyone. Uh, and this was, of course, of great concern for, for Uyghurs. But recently, people who have been in, able to visit the region realized that several books in Uyghur were actually put back on the shelves. But when you open them and you read them, you find that these books were probably written in Chinese and then translated into Uyghur. So wow. they are not books by Uyghur writers. Anyway, most of them have been imprisoned or interned or just writing is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. So what you find now is that the contents of the books, although it's written in, in Uyghur, has no Uyghur control elements at all. So what remains is only what Beijing wants us to read. And the books are completely emptied somehow. Uh, mm -hmm. They like empty nutshells, if you want. So it gives the illusion that Uyghur language is surviving and is dynamic and so on, but the content and the essence is not there. And that means the voices of the Uyghurs have disappeared. So I think this case, the reason why I mentioned this case is that it's very symbolic or emblematic of what is going on. Um, and this is also uh, quite symbolic of, of where we are going now. So the objective is clearly to create 
ideal Uyghur citizens that are cleared from any ability to express themselves or to make choice for themselves or to manage their own lives. So the content should be decided by up above in Beijing. And yeah. then what is in front of us is just a nutshell that is completely uh, empty. I think that's how we could probably best sum up what is going on and how to make sense of all the measures that you have mentioned so far, including homestays, for instance. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about the, the earlier practices, which seems to celebrate ethnic diversity, as you said, in the 50s, when I think China is still following this Russian model of um, branding ethnic minority into their stereotypes. I wonder why do they think it has failed? In what way it doesn't work? The objectives of the communist measures that were taken regarding minority populations in the 50s uh, were measures that were aiming at assimilating non-Han people. So whether the nationalists or the communists before the 50s, it's always been about assimilating non-Han. The difference is how do we assimilate non-Han people? This is where the difference was. And for the communist party in the early 50s, the idea was that this assimilation, this fusion would be natural would be a historical process mm -hmm. and that's helping uh, Uyghurs, Tibetans, Zhuang or any minority to preserve their culture and to preserve their language wouldn't prevent them from integrating into the Chinese society and to eventually become Chinese before being Uyghur or before being uh, Tibetan and so on. And so most of the, the scholars now who are arguing for accelerated fusion consider that this didn't work, that if the, the state doesn't intervene in this fusion, it's not going to happen because quite the reverse, actually, these policies implemented in the 50s are creating ethno-nationalism, uh, are creating more proud in their own language, in their own history, and so on and so forth. That's the main idea. Of course, it's not that simple in the sense that some policies were created in the 50s, but they were actually never implemented before the 80s. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that uh, minorities had several rights until the 2010s, and then suddenly things changed. It's been up and down all the time, actually. It's much more complicated, but the, the concepts officially remains the same. These non-Han populations will integrate into Chinese society and assimilate into the Han population through a natural process. Mm -hmm. And so this is the main idea that uh, people who defend uh, a second generation of ethnic policies are actually protesting against. They think, no, this has to be state-managed uh, instead orchestrated. So now let me move from the Chinese state to China's society. So I'll pick up the, the cotton story that I begin with. This year, in March, after H&M and other companies have stated to not use and ban cotton produced from Xinjiang, they faced a backlash and a boycott from Chinese consumers. So there are counter campaigns to support Xinjiang cotton by supporting local retail companies. So then many international brands are forced to take a choice, either to support Xinjiang cotton and therefore have access to the Chinese market, 
all to support the human rights report and ban Xinjiang cotton, which means they will lose access to the Chinese market. So I, I will not focus on the response from the companies. I will focus on the response from the consumers. Because uh, since China's government denies all charges of human rights abuse and does not allow any investigation into the nature of the re-education camps, and due to censorship online, uh, people in China would, I guess, normally believe the state and support the Xinjiang cotton to express their patriotism. Do you think that it explains the, the boycott in, in 2021? I think it's important first maybe um, to say that Chinese consumers are not a homogeneous group. They're not a mm. monolithic entity. In fact, Chinese people are, it's an extremely vast population. So there are all sorts of people and they may think, of course, very differently uh, and have different opinions. So I think what we hear and what we read in Chinese media is really the expression of the Chinese people. I don't mm -hmm. think it represents at least the diversity that exists within Chinese society. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is when we hear about boycotting H&M, for instance, mm -hmm. or other companies that refuse to use content from uh, the Uyghur region, I think these boycotts are actually quite marginal, just like mm -hmm. People here in Europe who boycott Chinese products are very rare and marginal, let's be mm. very honest. But the difference here is that in China, these kinds of boycotts are mostly state organized or encouraged by the Chinese state. While in Europe, these boycotts are usually organized by the civil society. So NGOs, associations, sometimes just groups of concerned citizens. So when we discuss Chinese boycotts of Western brands, for instance, it used to be Japanese brands, we are actually discussing state-orchestrated attempts to intimidate companies, uh, for which, like you say, the Chinese market is, is really crucial. I would be more nuanced on these situations of boycott. They are extremely, they circulate extremely well on Chinese media, but I, I think they are, they're still quite marginal. That said, it's true that some Chinese people demonstrate, or they think they will demonstrate patriotism and loyalty to the party states if they call for boycott. And uh, it's also true that there's a strong resentment among uh, some Chinese, especially young Chinese, uh, because China is often portrayed, maybe all the time, actually portrayed very negatively in Western media. And so the Uyghur case and, and forced labor and cotton from forced labor from the Uyghur region it's just one case amongst many that actually some Chinese people will consider as almost personal offense, uh, offense to themselves as, as people. While there is a clear distinction, I hope, between, of course, in, in people's mind in Europe, between the people and the states and between what is going on in Xinjiang and calls for uh, for for boycotts. So that would be my my answer. I think what explains the boycott is first the state promotion of boycotts, and second maybe some strong resentment from some young Chinese people who feel they are constantly attacked, who feel they are constantly considered as bad people or uh, as doing things that are condemned by others, and so somehow they want to express uh, maybe these discontents more than 
their concern or non-concern about Xinjiang cotton. That would be my guess. I think it points to a difficulty, uh, while nevertheless important to address, is to distinguish between what is ideological and what is cultural. So that is to say, distinguish between what is, as you said, state uh, orchestrated or spontaneous from society. Because as a phenomenon, they always bundle together. It's not easy to tell what is the main motor behind it. For example, this obsession with national unity uh, or this claim of pure traditional culture or Chinese heritage. I'm wondering if you have any methodological tip as to how would one distinguish or try to see the nuance behind a, a simple story? Well, of course, it's difficult not to see that there's a conflation between culture and ideology uh, in, in China. That's not very new. But I don't think the conflation between the people and the party state is difficult to spot. It's quite easy if you go on uh, Chinese social media, for instance, uh, you have several Chinese netizens who would express very different ideas from what the government wants them to say. And they often have a very clever strategies to uh, circumvent censorship as well. So th there are many studies about how uh, Chinese netizens would use, for instance, uh, emoticons or mm -hmm. sort of secret codes that are understood within the community and that actually bypass the censorship, at least for a little while until it's actually uh, spotted by uh, the Chinese authorities and then censored. And so these dynamics, I would say, that you can actually find on WeChat, Weibo, or all sorts of forums and chats on the internet, on the Chinese internet, would actually give hope to any <laughs> Chinese readers because it's much more complicated than uh, what it looks like. And people are really trying to open discussions, to, to think. And I see a lot of empathy for actually what is going on in, in the weaker region as well. I also see uh, very um, negative stereotypes about Uyghurs on the internet. But I mean, it's all there. And then you have to go and, and try to understand the mechanism within these discourses. But it's not just what the Chinese government wants them to say that is said on the internet. So the distinction is actually quite clear once you can get into the spaces for discussion, the small spaces that are left these days for, for Chinese people to talk about uh, any internal affairs actually, or any issue uh, that is taking place in China or beyond Chinese borders. So. In terms of methodology, it's very difficult to interview people uh, in China and to have clear and, um, uh, how can I say, honest answers, because actually anyone takes risks when the truth is said without any filter. So, but uh, the good way to do it is actually first to learn Chinese <laughs> or to have a good translator and go on this forum and see what people say. And, and then you can see that People are just like everywhere else in the world. They think with their own brain and they're not so brainwashed as sometimes they are described and they have their own ideas on, on various topics. I think it's very much a matter of education as curriculum in China include a lot of uh, patriotic and nationalistic uh, 
um, content uh, right. in many ways, and it's it's been it's been increasing clearly uh, yeah. since the the nineties, and it regularly comes back again and again. And so uh, I don't think this is about culture in the sense that I don't think that Chinese people are more keen to be obedient, for instance, or are more keen to um, uh, follow the state's ideology. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is something that is cultural. I think that this is something that is politically implemented, actually, mm. and that many sentiments that people may have or emotions or feeling actually not exactly their feeling or their sentiments or I don't think people really care actually about uh, big ideas such as patriotism or uh, nationalism, but it's it's becoming part of them because of the whole environment in which they grow up, which encourages them to identify themselves as citizens loyal to the party. And mm -hmm. it's very difficult to take distance from, from this identification that is imposed on you through school or even in, in your family. So I, I don't think, in a sense, I don't think that um, this is part of the Chinese culture. Mm. Uh, I think this is really about how policies are implemented to provide an environment that does not give you much space for your own thinking and that impose uh, um, already made thinking uh, on, on you. That, mm -hmm. that would be my impression. Right. Right. And I suppose diversity is not something that is celebrated in China. It, it is, but within certain limits. Right, right, right. Uh, uh, you have all these performances of ethnic minorities, for instance, they're there to celebrate diversity. But uh, it wouldn't be accepted if one expression of cultural safe self goes against you know, the main ideology. So it's just very limited. Actually now, especially in the past 10 years, or maybe it's under Xi Jinping's government, it's really about controlling who people are and what they represent in an order that is designed by the Communist Party. So if you are asking or calling for a different role from what from the the one that the party is giving you then you put yourself in danger because you go outside of the lines mm -hmm. um, I think this is more or less what it's about so diversity is something that China says to promote right but it's actually a state constructed diversity that that's the problem and that's the same for not just ethnic minorities i would say uh, we've seen the same for everything that people take as some space of liberty to do what they want at some point authorities will come and take over what mm -hmm. has been done and and then people have to find new spaces for themselves which they actually do that's why right. I think they are really strong. Keep leaving some spaces that they created for themselves and that are taken over by the state. And then they create new spaces until it's again <laughs> taken over by the state and so on and so forth. It's a perpetual motion. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. That's what makes Chinese society so fresh somehow to me. Okay, great. Well, let, let me um, wrap up and... Uh... 
I guess I want to connect the the case in Xinjiang to a, a bigger tendency or human condition maybe, because you know what happens to uh, Uyghurs is certainly not unique to Xinjiang nor to China or to the human history. Uh, this level of crime and evil can be seen throughout uh, history. However, the scale and the scope that China is able to implement uh, make it uh, particularly horrifying. But I suppose we shouldn't measure suffering or look at uh, suffering in terms of numbers. Uh, just to end the episode, I would like to ask you, what, what attitude should a normal audience, let's say in the English who are used to English media, treat news like this? And uh, if they would like to be more engaged, what actions could they take? Well, I think it's important to um, uh, not to oversimplify what is going on, of course. So that means um, it's important to read different opinions on what is going on and have various sources of information, of course, uh, even if that's in English. That said, you also have uh, Chinese texts which are translated in English on some platforms, so that can also help to have different opinions and realize that there are very different and opposing trends within within China, within Chinese power and within Chinese uh, uh, citizens uh, as well. So as for what we can do, uh, except for reading more, broaden our knowledge, uh, try to understand <clears throat> the situation and share with others, of course. I think we can simply try to stand strong on what we believe is right, because this is not about changing China or changing the Chinese government or changing the CCP, the Communist Party. It's, this is not something that uh, we, from here, uh, can do and can think about, but we can remain open to discussion. With others, we can try to have fair and kind discussions as well, uh, try to continue building bridges between people and have a better understanding of who we are and what we want as well. What kind of world do we want tomorrow? This is now that we have to build it and to decide about what we want, what we don't want, what we accept, what we don't accept how to be fair and how to act so that our main motives are not economic or political, I would say. This is really about connecting with others and uh, trying not to accept what is unacceptable uh, yeah. as human beings, say that this is what we can do. It's not very concrete, but there are many other concrete actions uh, that, that can be taken. It depends on each case, of course. Many people are already trying to think about different issues in China or different issues in the world and, and trying to connect these issues to have a broader understanding of where this world is going. So joining these discussions, for instance, is something that anyone can do to make his or her own opinion on, on what can be done and how he or she can be part of this. Great. I, I think that's perfect. Thank you, Vanessa. We will introduce the final music, the song called Vadiriha by uh, Sanuba Tusun. Would you like to introduce the song, uh, Vanessa? 
Yeah, so Sanuba Tursun is a very famous singer and musician. She's from a family of famous intellectuals and musicians as well. Uh, she was invited to give a series of concerts in Europe, especially in France, uh, two years ago, but we didn't hear of her and she seemed to have been disappeared. We don't know whether she was taken to a camp or if she's simply under house arrest. She seems to be home now, but we can't really have contact with her. And she uh, hasn't been able, obviously, to uh, play music as she usually uh, does uh, across China and and various other continents in the world. So this this song, Riha, is uh, a song that means regret. I invite you to actually discover all music by Sanuba Tursun. She's also a very internationally renowned singer and musician, and she often plays, she used to play overseas almost every year. So there are many videos on YouTube of her songs. <laughs>
Özüm et gül bana yoktur Diyanlar ahiyyem Hazayil ki Oh, 